The following message, The Invisible Wall, was prepared by Dr. Charles Solomon, who is the founder and president of Grace Fellowship International, and is being given to you verbatim from his manuscript. I am Ron Solomon, his son, and my ministry for the past 20 years has been Caraway Street, a church-time program using drama and puppetry. You are invited to contact either of us through the address at the end of the tape and on the card included in the tape package. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and pray that the Holy Spirit will use the contents of this message both to challenge and bless you. Over the last two or three years, I have been burdened to write several articles and poems which deal with the current spiritual and political situation in our country. As I considered presenting them to a Christian audience, God led me to arrange them around a theme of building walls of several sorts. Walls built by the world system, walls of our own making, and rebuilding the walls of the church. The poems seem to buttress the articles and are intended to prod your thinking, present a challenge, and to provoke you to prayer as you see the need to find your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ and to proclaim the message of revival to a desperately needy society. Please listen prayerfully and give your attention with intention to act upon that which God speaks to your heart. Let's begin with today's invisible wall. During my years of formal ministry dating back to 1970, there has been a major shift in the mores and mindset of our world, to such an extent that I believe that this period of history in our country will be viewed as a spiritual reformation in reverse, a kind of revisiting of the Dark Ages. At that time in history, there was a dearth of information and no scripture in the language of the people because the printing press had not yet been invented. Today, we are satiated with information to the point that we have ceased to be an industrial society and have become an information society. However, the rapid increase of knowledge, which doubles about every five years, has not resulted in people being better informed about the vital issues of life. In fact, the reverse is true. The mastering of information and the computer with which to do it have served to further deceive man into believing that he can chart his own destiny and program the desired end result. Mankind, having become preoccupied with his importance in his own eyes, has elevated the present to a par with the eternal. The past, with its wealth of wisdom and heritage, is discarded, and the future has been mortgaged so heavily that repayment is all but impossible. In repeating the strategy of those who emplaced the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe, history in our country is being revised as necessary to sever the moorings from our Judeo-Christian heritage and from the absolutes of God's word. Thus, the younger generations are at the mercy of revisionist history, relativistic thinking, and a liberal press that turns its eyes from that which is just and good and promotes the destructive goals of secular humanism. The vacuum that has been created by an inordinate preoccupation with materialism and an elevation of man in his own eyes has resulted in the religion of secular humanism in this country, supported by our taxes which has been heretofore unknown. By contrast, Humanistic answers being touted in this country have already proven bankrupt in Eastern Europe, and the spiritual vacuum there has had an opposite effect. Marxism did not fulfill its grandiose promises of an egalitarian society, nor did it provide a meaning and purpose that transcended the circumstances in which people found themselves. Both combined to drive them to overthrow the totalitarian governments and the spiritual hunger has opened up the people and the institutions to the gospel in an unprecedented way. 
In fact, the government is inviting Christians to come and help them implement Christian principles in both schools and government, while our government does all it can to assure that truth has little or nothing to do with its discharge of responsibility to God or to the electorate. At the same time, the Iron Curtain and Berlin Wall were being dismantled in Europe because of the disenchantment of the people with a godless government. An invisible wall was being erected in our country because of the vacuum left by an apathetic church and militant secularism, aided and abetted by the New Age movement. The Berlin Wall was torn down by the hands of men in overt fashion, while the invisible wall was being erected in the minds of men surreptitiously with all of the gains being cemented in legislation and Supreme Court decisions which subvert the original intent of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Only time will tell how much ground we have lost in the influence of the gospel on our culture and government. The humanists may like it or not, but our country was founded on Christian principles, which is the reason that God has been pleased to bless and prosper our nation. De Tocqueville said, God has made America great because it is good. When it ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. Since I began counseling in 1970, the socio-political landscape of America has been impacted negatively in many aspects. Christianity has gone from being the most favored religion in the U.S. for the first 200 years of our history to being maligned by almost any standard. No longer is it considered intelligent or even tolerable to hold the absolutes of God's word on which our nation was founded. The very freedoms to which our forefathers and the founders of the nation gave their allegiance and for which many laid down their lives have been twisted by the Supreme Court to support the godless pursuits of the few to the detriment of the many. In the not-too-distant past, Supreme Court justices have affirmed that America was a Christian nation. And until recent years, the court was interpreting the law in light of the foundational documents of our country. Now the opinions that are handed down are just that, opinions based on the whims of fallible individuals and their own value systems rather than adhering to the clear intent of the Constitution and supporting documents. Thus, the court has moved from interpreting law to becoming a pseudo-legislative body. As a result of the court's actions, it is now politically correct to espouse the murder of unborn babies as a freedom of choice, with upwards of 30 millions having been killed since the landmark decision, Roe v. Wade, in 1973. That same year, homosexuality went from being a mental aberration to the lofty status of an alternate lifestyle. Again, political correctness dictates that one not be critical of those choosing to participate in this particular sin. The actions of our elected and appointed officials have served to take homosexual behavior out of the realm of sin and invest it with civil rights as a proper humanistic option. Prior to 1973, homosexuality was viewed by the general populace from the historical viewpoint of the scriptures, and most states had laws against sodomy. Holding that position today is given the disparaging designation of homophobia which puts the believer on a collision course with contrary Supreme Court rulings if he holds unswervingly to the clear teaching of Scripture. Or, to put it another way, it is now wrong to be right, and right to be wrong. Those who have been enlightened by secular humanism have been propounding positions during the past 20 years that are diametrically opposed to the values held by believers and other right-thinking people for the past 2,000 years, to say nothing of those held by religious and moral people for several millennia before the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Isn't it interesting that those of this generation could think themselves superior to all of those who have gone before, whose lives and wisdom have made it possible for society to exist as we know it? But why am I belaboring the twin sins of abortion and homosexuality? It is because of the moral decline in our country that is eventuated in this gross miscarriage of morality and decency, to say nothing of the blatant sin that the judgment of God must come upon our country. We have gone so far down the road of wanton immorality and life decisions based on expediency, pleasure, and instant gratification that only a spiritual awakening can stem the tide of the secular humanism which promotes and facilitates it. Our churches have proven all but impotent to shape the mindset of the nation, and it is only as our nation turns back to God that the forces which have been set in motion can be curbed. It is absolutely vital that the light of the gospel reflect on the invisible wall, that all who will may see the encroachments of secular humanism and the satanic empowering of those who would dismantle the concepts of truth and decency in favor of everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. While the invisible wall cannot be seen with the eyes of the flesh, it is readily apparent to the spiritually discerning. The church at large has been guilty of complicity, if only by default, in permitting the invisible wall to be erected between God and the mind of modern man. Also, the encroachment of humanism has not bypassed the hallowed halls of the church in its pernicious influence. Since the teachings of psychology have been injudiciously accepted as an influence in the church, it has become the rule rather than the exception for Christian psychology and psychiatry to supplant the clear teaching of the cross as the method of choice in dealing with the mental, emotional, and behavioral symptoms of believers. Thus, the invisible wall has cast its shadow within the confines of the church, with much ministry being done in the energy of the flesh, and with fleshly methods and answers frequently usurping the preeminence of Christ and the cross. While there are many godly men and women who are practicing psychology in close cooperation with the church, the tenets of pure psychotherapy do not make the believer's crucifixion with Christ central to its goal and methodology. Therefore, even though individuals may be helped in psychological and social adjustment, the flesh is strengthened if the cross does not become a reality in the life. The believer may even be encouraged to confess and forsake sin, be diligent in the disciplines of the Christian life, and become very active in serving the Lord, and yet do it in his own strength. Since the teaching of the cross for the believer has all but vanished as an emphasis of the church, the invisible wall has made its presence felt in the teaching, or lack of teaching, of the church, and the work of God has been sapped of its power, since the preaching of the cross is the power of God. We are taught very clearly in the Word that there is a conflict within the believer between the flesh and the spirit. Since this is true within the believer, it must be patently obvious that there will be a similar conflict between the natural and the spiritual in every pursuit of life. The humanistic dimension, secular humanism, is aligned with the flesh in its rebellion against the spirit and the dictates of God's infallible word. If believers do not understand who they are in Christ and the reality of the walk in the spirit, they too can be deceived into adapting fleshly or humanistic tools as they would purpose to do God's work. The end result is the employing of carnal weapons in a vain attempt 
to pull down spiritual strongholds in a very real battle. When God called me to the ministry in 1967, it was for the purpose of pioneering an approach to counseling called spiritual therapy, which is at once Christ-centered and cross-centered in contradistinction to psychotherapy, which employs a human therapist and psychological principles. Although a Christian therapist would utilize scriptural principles as well, only a believer who has gone through the brokenness of the cross would be empowered or even see the necessity of another being led through the process of brokenness into wholeness. Absent that understanding, the therapist would unwittingly attempt to repair the brokenness, and the death-resurrection culmination intended by the Holy Spirit would have been aborted. Thus carnal weapons, which are inadequate for spiritual warfare, would have assuaged the symptoms without having dealt with the spiritual stronghold, the flesh. You will note that spiritual therapy is spelled with a capital S, indicating that the Holy Spirit is the therapist, not the individual believer who is called alongside to assist another in appropriating all that Christ is for all that he needs. As has been indicated, there is a battle within the individual believer between the flesh and the spirit. And there is an intense battle going on in our country for the soul of our nation between the forces of humanism, as augmented by Satan and his emissaries, and the church or the work of the living God. If our believers in our churches are walking after the flesh instead of walking in the spirit, we will not be drawing upon our resources in Christ and will continue to suffer defeat at the hands of the secular humanists, as did Joshua and the children of Israel at the Battle of Ai. Only as we deal with sin and the flesh in our lives will we be more than a match for the forces of evil. God has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, but this presumes that the church is moving as a mighty army, as a unified body following our master in love and obedience. Only so will we command the respect of those who are without and demonstrate to the world that our God lives. When the world sees living proof that we are not just the religious right, but a contingent of disciples walking in concert with the living God, they will come to respect us as soldiers of the cross. Are you a soldier of the cross marching to our Lord's command? Do you even know there is a war raging throughout the land? The inroads of the enemy are causing widespread destruction. Many of us are lulled to sleep since his strategy is seduction. The loss of life and casualties stagger the imagination. Multiplied millions of babies killed with the approval of our nation. Millions of others have been seduced by cults, new age, and gay pride. Many of these have never heard there is freedom in the crucified. The good news of the gospel has been taught without its power. Absent the victory of the cross, soldiers tend to retreat and cower. We meet in enclaves to worship and depart to do our thing, and enemy forces unite to fight while we our choruses sing. Political candidates garner votes sanctioning abortion and perversion, the faith of our fathers undermined by ill-disguised forms of subversion. Mandates of God's word forsaken in favor of gay rights and pro-choice, opponents of the right are exalted, the truth all but denied a voice. 
All that's required for evil to win is for believers to do nothing. The cross of Christ, the power of God, replaced by lies and New Age clothing. Churches go about business as usual, answering questions people aren't asking. The enemy's plan pushes full bore ahead with believers in salvation basking. Soldiers in God's tattered army are ill-fed, ill-trained, and defeated. Unless we awake and don our armor, Sodom and Gomorrah will be repeated. God is looking for righteous men who are willing to stand in the gap. Suffering and sacrifice are the watchwords. Victory will not just fall in our lap. Self-serving, not self-sacrifice, has been the order of the day. A generation has been spawned that has rarely heard the way. Peace, peace, when there is no peace, is the enemy's battle cry. Those accustomed to the good life are conditioned to believe the lie. Our freedoms are rapidly eroding. We have taken our blessings for granted. Will God grant us a reprieve while his word and life are implanted? It is no longer a matter of choice. It will soon be a fight for survival. Human effort will no longer avail. Our only hope is Holy Spirit revival. Are you ready for revival to come and to have it begin in you? Are you ready your life to lose that yours he might live through? The cross is no longer optional, and really it never has been. Our life to save we must lose if we are a new life to begin. Preaching the cross, the power of God, is the message believers need. But the pleasure-mad throng drives onward, blinded by self and refusing to heed. It is not easy ourselves to deny and to find our meaning in Him. But without revival in the church, the future of our nation is dim. His challenge to us is simple. Allow the Spirit our hearts to search. Only as we're transformed one by one will there be life in his body, the church. The world has chosen darkness. Humanism and sin are a blight. We must die in order to live, if to the world we're to be the light. I am dead with Christ, yet I live. And as the branch and the vine I abide, the world is crucified unto me. Unto the world I am crucified. All is not lost if we're willing to lose our lives, as the scriptures say. Thanks be to God for triumph in Christ as we overcome the world by faith. The invisible wall of secular humanism has served the purpose of making the wrong acceptable and the right intolerable. Whether in behavior or appearance, the culture has been conditioned to accept the previously unacceptable and is expected to turn a blind eye to unisex styles, a deaf ear to music that promotes violence and immorality, and an accepting attitude toward behavior that society as a whole would not have tolerated just a few short years ago. All of this together should give us reason to muse. Whatever happened to shame? Once upon a time, a people came to our shore with purpose clear 
God to revere. Their faith, their stock in store. Personal gain was set aside in their quest to worship God. Would that our youth would follow truth in the path their forefathers trod. But the lack of need obscures the creed on which our nation was founded. The humanist manifesto and other ploys necessitate the alarm being sounded. For the children's sake, it's time we take a long look at our nation's heading. Lacking truth, they can't discern the lies the humanists are spreading. In the 60s, they said that God was dead and proceeded to do their own thing. Rock music, the background for sex and drugs, paved the way and man crowned himself king. The kingdom of self, not rooted in truth, let everyone set his own rules, saying in their hearts, there is no God, his word proclaims them fools. The name of the game to avoid the blame, allowing man to sin with impunity. Those of the human race resisting grace in rebellion against God find unity. This scenario makes it wrong to be right because right is based on God's word. Porno abounds in sight and sounds while truth is all but not heard. Severed from our source of life, God's absolutes cast to the wind. Our anchor we lift and are set adrift, refusing to admit that we've sinned. Now we've built our land on the shifting sand of humanism and political correctness. Abortion and perversion, its fruit, invites God's judgment with directness. When anything goes, we're in the throes of the death of a Christian nation. Truth is impugned and right is denied while rock stars receive adulation. Men look to the sky, their heads held high, all the while reviling God's name. Their conscience seared, God not revered. We have lost the meaning of shame. If God's people will humble themselves, even those who are called by his name, will pray and turn and seek his face. He will heal our land of its shame. The Lord Jesus came to bear our shame and to give us his life in its place. I ask you now your head to bow and become a partaker of grace. Sin is a reproach to any people, but righteousness a nation exalts. God cannot bless a man or land that between two opinions halts. So come, let us follow his bidding and count all else but loss. There is no gain without some pain. Let's freely embrace the cross. Not only have we lost a sense of shame, but we have been conditioned to accept the wanton destruction of unborn children, beginning with the Supreme Court decision in 1973. Now the Kevorkian fiasco is laying the foundation in court decisions to permit the taking of lives of those who desire suicide due to lacking what they, and before too long, others deem to be an insufficient quality of life. With such precedents in place, can euthanasia be far behind? As we reach the century's end, there's an eerie sense of foreboding. 
Though none can chart the future, all can see moral values eroding. The glory day of America exchanged for one of shame and blight. Man does what's right in his own eyes, ignoring God's word and its light. We either learn from history or we will repeat its mistakes. Purging God's influence on our culture ignores the past and history remakes. Rome's corruption was its downfall after knowing a season of power. Our country teeters on the brink as from God's absolutes we cower. Sigmund Freud set the stage for values based on pleasure. Anything that he forgot, situation ethics added in measure. The 60s binge of drugs and sex cast all caution to the wind, paving the way for the 70s trend that only our Lord can mend. Sexual freedom was the hue and cry. In chorus, humanists lifted their voice. Escaping responsibility for their sin led to the birth of pro-choice. In unison with those for abortion, advocates of perversion held sway. Homosexuality no longer mental illness. Since 73, it's okay to be gay. With 30 million babies killed, approved by humanistic courts, rampant sin continues apace, those involved not facing their torts. God in heaven bides his time as man sends away the day of grace. There'll come a time, pray not too late, when man will seek his face. Human life, from womb to tomb, its value has been degraded. From birth to death and in between, God's sphere has been invaded. God's word assures he'll not be mocked. His control is sovereign still. Though man's allowed to spurn his love, it is in the domain of his will. It's politically correct to espouse the view of life in the hands of man. The quality of life is man's to decide whether long or short its span. When the planet can't give man his due, the end of his reign has begun. Will he continue life to destroy, or will he find life in the sun? Unwanted babies can be a thorn, causing sacrifices and limiting pleasure. Likewise, older people can sap resources and prevent the laying up of treasure. With the courts approving killing babes to the absolutes of God's word are blind. When economics no longer avail, can euthanasia be far behind? With the invisible wall firmly emplaced on its godless foundation, we are reaping the results in all facets of society. With irresponsible behavior being the rule rather than the exception, those exhibiting it shift the responsibility to everyone but themselves. Thus, the government forces taxpayers to support irresponsibility rather than penalizing the offending parties. From the white-collar sin of the SNL bailout to wanton immorality, drugs, violence, and widespread dishonesty from top to bottom, our attempts at solutions are like placing band-aids on cancer. Instead of recognizing God's limits and absolutes, we continue to attempt to build our own walls, as illustrated in the anonymous poem, The Ambulance Down in the Valley, and the subsequent material.
Twas a dangerous cliff, as they frankly confessed, though to walk near its crest was so pleasant. But over its terrible edge there had slipped a duke, and full many a peasant. So the people said something would have to be done, but their projects did not all tally. Some said, put a fence round the edge of the cliff. Some, put an ambulance down in the valley. Well, the cry for the ambulance carried the day, for it spread through the neighboring city. A fence may be useful or not, so they say, but each heart became brimful of pity for those who have slipped over the dangerous cliff. And dwellers on highway and in alley gave pound and pence not to put up a fence, but an ambulance down in the valley. For the cliff is all right if you're careful, they said, and even if folks slip and are dropping, it isn't the slip that hurts them so much as the shock down below when they're stopping. So day after day as those mishaps occurred, quick forth with the rescuers sally to pick up the victims who fell off the cliff with their ambulance down in the valley. Then an old sage remarked, "'Tis a marvel to me that people give far more attention to repairing results than to stopping the cause when they'd much better aim at prevention. Let us stop this mischief at its source," cried he. Come, neighbors and friends, let us rally. If the cliff we would fence, we could almost dispense with the ambulance down in the valley. Oh, he's a fanatic, the others rejoined. Dispense with the ambulance? Never. He'd dispense with all charity, too, if he could. No, no, we'll support them forever. Aren't we picking up people as fast as they fall? Shall this man dictate to us, shall he? Why should people with sense stop to put up a fence while an ambulance waits in the valley? We chuckle at the apparent idiocy of the logic or lack thereof in the foregoing scenario. However, it is not nearly so comical when we realize that the same scene is being played out regularly in the day-to-day -day affairs of our nation. One is only to look at the burgeoning crime statistics and the massive amounts of funds being spent on the ambulance in the valley, over $600 billion in the past year, according to a recent tabulation of costs related to crime. Though there is much talk about crime prevention, it is usually in terms of education which would merely give us better educated criminals. In fact, the educational system contributes to the malady by continuing to propagate the dogma of secular humanism, which intentionally subverts any attempt to inculcate traditional values upon which our nation was founded. Another area that is fraught with difficulty is that of the mental health field, where billions are squandered each year on approaches which have a modicum of results at best. As in the criminal justice system, the emphasis is on the psychological and behavioral symptoms rather than getting to the root causes which will invariably involve the spiritual aspects of the person. Though some forms of therapy will give a nod of the head towards spiritual things, it tends to be a generic one-size-fits-all, such as is utilized in the ever-present 12-step programs which have come to be known as the recovery movement. Values clarification and the promotion of politically correct agenda serve to deepen the rift between values based on absolutes and those fostered by the humanist manifesto. 
Any mention of getting to the heart of the matter, which is changing the heart of man, is greeted with hostility and threats of litigation if Christian values are taught. The do-your-own-thing mentality and situation ethics fostered by secular humanism are directly responsible for the rampant violence, abortion, and sexual immorality which plague our nation. Obviously, any solutions they might offer are based on the same rationale that created the problem. Added to this is the fact that the schools are not even doing a good job of turning out scholars which are steeped in humanism. Many high school graduates are functionally illiterate, and those who are not are out of touch with the values on which our nation was founded due to the revisionist history, not to mention the stringent avoidance of spiritual values. Research studies tend to emphasize all of the variables except the spiritual dimension of man and the role this has played in the lives of those past and present, this despite the fact that man is the only creature who is made in the image of God. Such an irrational approach to research and to human behavior is mute testimony to the fact that the researchers are out of touch with traditional values that produce solid citizens, or they intentionally and assiduously avoid facing such foundational information because it would force them to deal with absolutes. Whether in the field of criminal justice, mental health programs, the welfare system, the political and economic situation in the country, or in foreign affairs, it is always throwing money at the symptoms with no attempt to ferret out and resolve root problems. Our country has been bankrupted by buying ambulances at inflated prices, many of which will not even run. While those in positions of authority continue to recommend bigger and better ambulances, those going over the cliff are now in avalanche proportions, such that stopgap measures will no longer make it possible to pick up the pieces, much less stanch the flow of devastated lives and squandering of rapidly dwindling financial resources. Since our whole economy is based on building ambulances, it is sheer folly to propose that the source of the problem be addressed until such time that the ambulances can no longer provide quality of life by administering first aid to the victims. That time is now upon us. However, a transition to dealing with real issues will force people to face up to personal responsibility. Rather than shifting blame and expecting the government to provide for their needs and to protect them from the results of past irresponsible, if not sinful, behavior. There will be resistance on many fronts when the gravy train begins to operate on a drastically reduced schedule. The church is the only institution that can offer an answer that will work for time and eternity. However, the church of the 20th century has all too frequently invested heavily in the ambulance industry and must get back to basics if it is to have increased credibility with believers and unbelievers alike and the empowering to turn the world upside down. Since many pastors have become ambulance drivers, it will necessitate some massive cross-training if they are again to become effective under-shepherds. Many believers have followed the pastor's lead and have become ambulance chasers. Needless to say, it isn't long before they have a vision to build a mega-ambulance where the banner of the cross is flown from the masthead, if not at the helm. Soon, other believers flock in with many merely looking for the excitement of a free ride in a comfortable vehicle and with little or no intention of getting involved in tending to the needs of the herding. 
Other pastors become enamored with the success of the venture, as indicated by size and numbers, and a mega ambulance movement is launched. Marketing strategies and management techniques are paramount, and the mega ambulance tends increasingly to blend in with its worldly counterparts with both traveling in the fast lane. Getting back to basics means that judgment must begin at the house of God. Only Holy Spirit revival will avail to bring about the sweeping changes necessary to affect social reform in our country and in the world. Those who have fallen off the cliff must refuse the ambulance ride and lose their lives in order to save them. Only as they die to the answers proffered by the world system will they know the power of resurrection life and experience revival that will transform their lives and make them instruments of revival or renewal in the lives of others. Having heard the treatment of the anonymous poet concerning the ambulance in the valley, it would seem remiss not to end this section with my own poem which completes the action entitled The Fence on the Cliff. The view from the cliff is enchanting, and most will come under its spell. Humanism promises heaven on earth, but its teachings send one to hell. It's obvious our country's in trouble, but with man's answers we continue to dally. The heads of state can only relate to the ambulance down in the valley. To see the fence requires some sense which only our Lord can give. Those lacking light will have no sight as for pleasure they continue to live. Blinded by sin and slaves to its power, for lust's fulfillment they do rally. But when sin's reign results in pain, they clamor for the ambulance in the valley. The hope implied by the ambulance ride has destruction built in its roots. With pain relieved, man is deceived, not being grounded in absolutes. The ambulance takes a circuitous route through highway, street, and alley. With truth spurned, not having learned, over the cliff goes the ambulance to the valley. The fence on the cliff is already in place for those who receive God's word. Since the cross on a cliff called Calvary, there's been salvation in our risen Lord. Our sovereign head, his blood he shed, shall we yield to his lordship? Shall we? As his word we heed, there'll be no need for an ambulance down in the valley. Dealing with symptoms rather than treating root causes is nowhere better illustrated than in the proliferation of abortion. Some may go so far as to advocate contraception to avoid the pregnancy, but there are few who will promote dealing with the problem through abstinence. Expedience and convenience dictate the redefinition of life as only viable when sustained outside the mother's body. Even though babies have survived premature births of three months or more, they are still considered a fetus instead of an unborn baby to reduce the guilt on the part of the mother and the abortionist. Though much time may have passed for ladies who have suffered the trauma of abortion, they may still seek relief through a cry in the night. As I've pondered names and faces of ladies counseled through the years, their babies' lives lost to abortion, they have watered their beds with tears. 
Go ahead, they have been advised. Soon it will all be over. But a heavy heart and years of pain will be theirs yet to discover. They have bought the lie, sin to decry. Taking a life is a woman's choice. But many of those are shocked to learn they have not stilled the baby's voice. Though the life was snuffed out, the lips have not been sealed. Even with the passing of many years, emotional scars are yet to be healed. When will women learn truth to discern? They have been pawns in the hands of men. A life conceived, a lie believed as they attempt to cover their sin. The men can go their merry way, leaving a woman to deal with her pain. Unless she finds God's healing balm, her quest for relief is in vain. The killing of babies is not recent. There is nothing new on the earth. Formerly they died of exposure. Now they are killed before birth. God's judgment is fair and certain, despite humanistic attempts at denial. His word is unchanged through the ages. It's man, not God, that's on trial. God's judgment is tempered with mercy as he dealt with sin at the cross. Only as abortion is faced as murder will the believer not suffer loss. The blood of Christ, the conscience purges from dead works our God to serve. It can only be applied to our hearts as we refuse from the cross to swerve. The peace that passes understanding awaits the one who self-denies. The very righteousness of God to the repentant heart he applies. Come to the cross and find relief from Satan's taunts and midnight cries. With mind renewed and emotions healed, you'll be free from Satan's lies. The present situation will not be turned around by cursing the darkness or blessing it for that matter. The light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only answer for a heart or a culture that is blinded by secular humanism as aided and abetted by the enemy of souls. However, the church has defaulted in its God-given mandate and must experience revival or renewal if the present generation is going to take it seriously. Since the church in this country has not previously been faced with ministering to a post-Christian society, it is ill-equipped to communicate the gospel in a relevant manner. While a large segment of the population is hurting, they have been indoctrinated to seek professional help, which usually has a decidedly secular bent. The church has always had and still has the answer, but it is necessary that it be presented in a manner that will win a hearing. Yesteryear's methods have long since lost contact with the non-church-going public, and Christians have tended to develop a fortress mentality. Isolating ourselves within four walls and expecting others to come to us is merely wishful thinking. Therefore, it is necessary to redefine and rebuild the walls of the church. During the first two centuries of our history as a country, the church has enjoyed unparalleled freedom and even commanded the respect of its detractors. In this position, it more or less served as the conscience of the country. In the main, Americans were God-fearing, law-abiding citizens, even if they were not born-again believers. The right of the church to stand firmly on the absolutes of God's word was seldom called into question. Since the church at large was in basic accord with the tenets of a democratic republic and was not supported by taxes, it was granted tax-free status. 
as long as the ship of state maintained a basic heading that was consistent with the principles of scripture, resulting in morality, if not spirituality, the church could function in the role of servant to society and had sufficient respect to confront its ills without fear of serious repercussion. In the post-war years, the ship of state began to veer off course and a national identity crisis resulted in the sexual revolution of the 60s. Casting aside both restraint and constraint, the younger generation severed with the past and had little direction for its heavily mortgaged future. Attempting to build an identity based on hedonism, rock music provided the background for unbridled lust, and the restraints of morality based on the absolutes of God's word were exchanged for bondage to sin, self, and Satan. Those who have been steeped in the teaching of situation ethics are convinced that any limitation of their freedom to do their own thing is the cause of their unhappiness. Since the church has largely forsaken its birthright by failing to teach the cross and the cross's outworking in the life of the believer, which is commonly called revival or renewal, it bears much responsibility for the deterioration of the moral fabric of the country. The ground which has been ceded to the world by default has been occupied by devotees to the causes of abortion, gay rights, and the various New Age agenda. Despite its anemic condition, the church remains the lone voice that contests the inroads being made by secular humanism in its many manifestations and stands between them and the consummation of the stated goals of the humanist manifesto. However, this voice is becoming more muted each passing day with its freedom of expression being hampered by its privileged position as a tax-free entity. Retaining such a status could conceivably require a church to subscribe to politically correct positions on controversial issues. While the humanists know that they do not have the clout to make a frontal attack on the church for fear of united opposition, the strategy will be to come in the back door and pick off one offender at a time through various guises until sufficient precedent has been set to make a major move, either legislatively or in the Supreme Court. As a recent case in point, in the Southwest, a televangelist sermons taped for television are being monitored for any reference to the sins of abortion and homosexuality. When one was detected, the tape was withdrawn by the TV station and a previous tape was run in its place. The message is clear that he must water down his sermons and be soft on these particular sins if he is to remain on television, unless he wants to pay for reruns. The implications of this are enormous when all of the ramifications are considered. Since both abortion and homosexuality are being vested with civil rights, a pastor who preaches against these particular sins would be accused of making a political diatribe which would very soon endanger the tax-exempt status of the church. Also, any discrimination against homosexuals in the membership and or ministry of the church could be deemed worthy of bringing the tax-exempt status into question. The implications of this tacit censorship by the government are far-reaching in their impact on the church. Since many churches are heavily in debt, it would be impossible for them to pay real estate taxes and continue to function. If they were no longer tax exempt, their income would also be subject to taxation and there would probably be a decline in giving if there were no tax benefits to the donor. Another consideration is the likelihood that insurance costs will be prohibitive if vandalism against church property continues to escalate. It is highly likely that churches will have to make a hard choice.
either toe the line and omit any references to these sins which will dilute their message and all but destroy their effectiveness, or decline the benefits of tax exemption and forego what amounts to a government subsidy. This latter position, which may be the only position for those embracing the absolutes of God's word, will be for churches to strip down to the bare essentials and shed the encumbrance of being beholden to the government for favoritism as a tax-exempt entity. It can be readily seen that a development of this sort would be at cross-purposes with the current trend toward megachurches and the attendant debt servicing which is common to most. It is of utmost importance that churches rid themselves of debt in the very likely event that they will be paying real estate and income taxes in the not-too-distant future. If we are to know the power that was demonstrated by the first century church in the 21st century, it seems likely that our accommodations may be increasingly similar to theirs. Today, home churches are the exception rather than the rule. Tomorrow, they may be the rule rather than the exception. It appears to me that cell groups are to become the basic unit of teaching and fellowship with the entire body coming together for a celebration on a weekly basis rather than attempting to provide sufficient real estate for all of the functions to be housed at one location. Such decentralization will reduce the feasibility of targeting one vulnerable facility for vandalism and or harassment and be more in keeping with the societal trends. Whereas the church, meaning the building, was the meeting place for most community activities in days gone by, the trend today is toward individualism or meeting in small interest groups. Since we are in an information society where the emphasis is on learning tailored to the needs of the individual and small interest groups, it will be increasingly difficult to elicit participation in activities which are geared to the large group. However, when small groups are harnessed for the primary dissemination and assimilation of teaching from the Word of God, the necessary preparation will have been accomplished to pave the way for meaningful celebration by the entire body, usually on Sunday morning. This means that the primary teaching will not take place in Sunday school on the campus, but individually and in small groups which will necessitate that innovative approaches to learning be developed that will meet people where they are and allow them to proceed at their own pace. Many can take advantage of programmed learning through the use of computers, interactive CDs, and associated media. Some will be able to fellowship with and be challenged by believers through the use of computer networks, nationally and internationally. Obviously, approaches to Christian education that are antiquated by today's standards will go by the board if the church is to relate meaningfully to the educational needs of its members and would-be members. It would seem that concentrating the educational efforts and fellowship possibilities of the church in one place will be increasingly counterproductive from the standpoint of the perceived needs of the individual and from the constraints of an increasingly alien society in a post-Christian nation. This will necessitate a massive restructuring not only of the facilities, but also of the preparation and placement of staff that they might be effective in a body of believers in what could amount to a modern-day dispersion. It is very likely that this will be thrust upon us by the lack of government protection and or hostile government tactics, much as was experienced by the church in Jerusalem. We can either read the handwriting on the wall and do it systematically and methodically, or we could be forced into a rout and attempt to make the best of a bad situation. It seems that it is time that we take a proactive stance 
as opposed to one that is reactive and seek the leading of the Holy Spirit as to how the church can be most effective in reaching and teaching people in a secular society at the end of the century. Preaching the gospel is at heart the dissemination of information, but not only is it information, it is absolute truth which must be proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. While the message can never change, the method of imparting the message to the lost and to the saved must be done in a manner consistent with the systems of communication commonly employed in the society in which we find ourselves. The methods and efficiency of communication have changed almost totally in the past 20 years with the advent of the computer and the micro-miniaturization of its components. However, most churches have done very little to keep in step with these radical changes. If we continue to utilize horse and buggy days methods of communication in a space and information age society, the church must necessarily continue to fall behind in its relevance to the very society with which it is attempting to communicate. Since we are teaching a Christian message to a post-Christian nation, many of those to whom we witness are alienated not only from the church but also from their families and all too frequently from themselves. No longer do we have the privilege of ministering to a user-friendly society. It will continue to be indifferent at best and hostile at worst. In any culture, it is vital to get the gospel into the language that is understood by those to whom we minister. In our country, the language is rapidly becoming one that has no place for God, and those who are to be reached with the gospel must have it presented in a manner that is consistent with their other communication input. Otherwise, they will be convinced that the gospel is old-fashioned, a teaching that has no relevance to our day and age. This is exactly what the secular humanists would have them think, and our use of antiquated methods of education and communication can only serve to underscore in their minds that our message is as irrelevant as our methods. The preaching of the cross is the power of God and the use of state-of-the-art methods of communication can only serve to enhance its appeal to those who are accustomed to utilizing them in the information age. Taken together, it means that we must rethink and have God's leading as to the face the church must present to a culture that increasingly relegates God to the status of one myth among a myriad of others which have no personal impact in their lives. The challenge to the church is to seek God's leading and make the necessary adjustments and restructuring in obedience rather than wait until the radical changes in society dictate the form in which it must function. In other words, will we respond to God and proceed in an orderly manner or will we react to societal pressure and function from a defensive posture, always playing catch-up? It is not as though we have a choice or that we can take all the time we want in making the necessary modifications. Society is well into the information age and the church is well behind it. The commitment to relevant communication in obedience to the Lord's leading is paramount. Once that is accomplished, the conceptual and structural changes will necessitate that all involved break out of their comfort zone of doing church the old way in favor of walking with the Spirit as He makes all things new. Since most of us are opposed to change, there is likely to be considerable resistance from those who are not in touch with the radical changes in the world around us. Going the old ways and the old paths is much more familiar and comfortable. The problem is that these paths now lead to a dead end because of the invisible wall erected by an indifferent, if not hostile, society. 
Since the church is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, it behooves us to move in unison with each other and maintain a constant, consistent, and relevant witness to a rapidly changing world which is lost, but making good time in a direction that is going nowhere. But of what or to whom are we to witness? In the early chapters of the book of Acts, we see that the first century Christians were to be witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was their personal experience of his crucifixion and resurrection that gave them the boldness and power to testify to the validity of this pivotal event in history. They had to stand against the establishment, the Roman Empire, and the walls that it presented to the spread of the gospel, with many being imprisoned and losing their lives as a result. Just so, our standing against and seeing the invisible wall of secular humanism dismantled will necessitate our being witnesses not only to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to the reality of our death and resurrection with Him. Since our whole society is steeped in the tenets of humanism and the message of the church has been diluted by it far more than most of us realize, there is no way that such a major change in the thought processes and behavior of the people in this country can be accomplished in our own strength. Only as the walls of the church are rebuilt will there be the resurrection power manifested in revival that can topple the invisible wall. However, the church of today has been enamored of building physical walls in massive churches while the real church, the body of Christ, continues to shrink when compared with the population increase. Few of the megachurches in this country have experienced their rapid growth to the place of prominence solely because of the addition of new believers. I think it is safe to say that the majority of those affiliating with such churches have left other churches, sometimes to the detriment of both. While we can talk about the walls, buildings, and methods of communication, in the final analysis it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. God gave Nehemiah the burden and vision for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, but it was necessary that he move mightily in the heart of the king as well as the children of Israel if the mammoth task were to be accomplished. Just as Nehemiah had to appeal to the king for the resources to undertake the rebuilding of the walls, we must make a concerted appeal in prayer to the king of kings for our resources in the Holy Spirit to rebuild the walls of the church by sending revival. The apostles in the book of Acts were empowered by the Holy Spirit to inaugurate the church based on their being witnesses of the resurrection. Our being empowered to rebuild the walls of the church can only be based on our personal experience of our death and resurrection with Christ. The teaching of the cross in this sense is foreign to the teaching of most churches and as a result foreign to the experience of the majority of believers. Only as we lose our lives or identities based on time-space relationships, a humanistic identity, will we know and be able to propagate a life of resurrection power which emanates from our union with Christ. Luke 14.27 states, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In Matthew 16.18 we read, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have his sure promise that he will build his church. It is patently obvious that he is not talking about a building, nor is he speaking of a particular denomination or system of theology. 
In 1 Peter 2.5, we are described as part of his building. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Only widespread revival will avail to renew the minds of believers and equip them with Holy Spirit power that the church might be a formidable power as it engages the world system in a life and death conflict. As the message of the cross is taught in the power of the Holy Spirit, lives will be transformed. Those so transformed can quickly be trained to communicate the message via personal testimony, one-on-one, -on -one, and in groups such that revival can spread through families, churches, and the country. When a believer appropriates his resources in Christ through the Holy Spirit's illumination of his death and resurrection with Christ, he has moved from the wilderness into Canaan in Old Testament typology. Most need a Joshua to lead them across the Jordan into the victory of Canaan. Having tasted of the milk and honey of Canaan, each believer can become a Joshua to others and lead them into Canaan, the victorious, abundant life in Christ. When the church is based in Canaan instead of its present address, the wilderness, the walls will have been rebuilt and a powerful appeal may be made to those yet in Egypt or in the wilderness to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. The following poem, God's Processing Tunnel, is illustrative of this journey. Egypt. As we embark on the journey of life and partake in its burdens and cares, ere long we loathe the turmoil and strife and seek respite from its snares. In vain we search for joy that endures among the pleasures and trinkets of earth, only to find that which beckons and lures is empty and void of true worth. On and on till the restless heart cries for the relentless ache to cease. Oh, for someone to wipe tears from our eyes and flood our beings with peace. At length we see that he who died was acquainted with sorrow and grief, and we come confessing our sin and pride and in coming experience relief. The Wilderness in this newfound friend all grace resides that abounds to our every need. The promise is to him who in Jesus abides, to him who from self has been freed. But the monster self is a dauntless foe that insists on ruling the life. So instead of the peace we fain would know, we encounter a new kind of strife. As the battle rages and clouds are dark and our way with heartaches is lined, we almost give up, we almost give out when hark a promise, I will bring the blind. Many are the doubts as he leads us along by a path that we would not choose, but cling to him we can't go wrong since our life to save we must lose. As in a tunnel whose center is black we yearn for a light on our path, in the wall of despair we search for a crack that we might walk by sight, not faith. The Spirit's discipline reaching far and wide denies the comfort we keep demanding. But as we take our place in the crucified, we find peace past all understanding. 
Canaan. Now as before, a new battle begins for which we are ill-prepared. As Satan his fiery darts expends to tempt us again to despair. When he launches forth his savage attack to regain the ground he has lost, we're tempted to quit and turn our back on the warfare and its ultimate cost. In the battle fierce with strength bereft, we realize that all is but loss and retrace our steps to the place we left as he delivers us always to the cross. As our mortal flesh shows our union with him, Jesus' life will be manifest and the things of this world will ever grow dim as we enter into rest. Though your way seems hopeless and full of fears, God is handling you in love, dear friend. No matter how dark your tunnel appears, take heart, there is light at the other end. Despite its shortcomings, as it is presently functioning, the church is God's ordained institution, and he will change the form as necessary to accomplish his eternal purposes, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I would like to summarize our look at the modern church under the heading, The Task of the Church Today. Society's ills are many and deep, with suffering a common plight. Many are angry and others weep, while wise men seek for light. Our currency says, in God we trust, but our actions the maxim deny. God's word is met with disgust, and truth is replaced with lies. Fortunes are made from TV's fair of sex, violence, drugs, and booze. When viewers are warped by their wares, the purveyors we dare not accuse. Freedom of speech is the hue and cry. First Amendment rights are demanded. Their actions, their motives belie. It's hypocrisy to be quite candid. When violence erupts and many are killed, it's easy to blame the smoking gun. Lives are lost and lips are stilled while the smut shops continue to run. Labor we must to end the crime with each of us doing his part. But much effort is a waste of time unless God does change man's heart. Billions of dollars are spent each year on the results of sin and pleasure. Increasing numbers will live in fear as drives are indulged without measure. But God has not left us without recourse if we'll deny ourselves and look to Him. Aberrant behavior must stop at its source or we will cater to every whim. Behavioral sins must be addressed, but the problem is deeper still. Personal guilt must again be stressed, appealing to the domain of the will. Accountability to God is lost from view as the tenets of humanism hold sway. Bowing the knee to Him all must do, because there is coming Judgment Day. Weird behavior and more weird looks are thrust in the believer's face, Rock music, porno movies, and trashy books are offered to kids in God's place. Should we wonder why our kids go wrong when television is their teacher? They're not only taught rebellion strong, but given a disdain for a preacher. 
Chaos and anarchy are the certain end if we continue our present heading. Our only hope is our ways to mend that destruction may be kept from spreading. Certainly believers cannot condone wanton killing, abortion, and gay rights, but standing against the behaviors alone won't rid our nation of these blights. Reaping the results of sowing to the flesh is promised in God's word. Corruption which lives does in mesh shows the message has not been heard. Sowing to the Spirit gives a promise of life, an everlasting life in the Son. We can experience an end to strife and abide in the victory He has won. A watching world on us depends without knowing it is seeking light. Will we continue our energy to expend on answers we should know are not right? As always, the only answer is the cross, which must put an end to self's reign. But indulging our flesh has meant loss with the inevitable results of great pain. Concerted prayer is the key which will unlock God's door of blessing. Spiritual renewal will His answer be with relief from dilemmas distressing. When the church again becomes the church and accepts leading from its head, many are those who will cease to search for meaning in the world in its stead. When the church of today knows the power of old, the world will begin to take notice. When believers are different with a witness bold, they will have reason for which to notice. Having been with Jesus, our lives should show a joy and purpose which sets us apart with a ready answer that they may know as we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. As we approach the end of the age, our Lord promised to be with us. As the battle with the enemy we do wage, He will be sufficient in every crisis. He commands us to reach, teach, and baptize and boldly approach the throne of grace. Only in Him can we hope to realize, well done, at the end the race. As we close out our time together, let's frame the future as though we were looking at a new year with a poem entitled, A New Year, A New Day, and A New Life. A new year spreads before us like the dawning of another day. It can be a time of new beginnings, or we can go our willful way. Our Father bids us walk with Him that He might transform our life. When we refuse to yield our all, we're doomed to live with strife. With year's end comes inventory that we might know our standing. A good time too, our lives to search. Are we thankful or demanding? When we take stock of what we have, is it measured in dollars and cents? Or do we submit to the righteous judge, since he's the one who will recompense? With violence all around us, we survey the ominous scene. The situation that surrounds us holds little that is serene. As the turbulence mounts its fury and the world longs for peace, only those who walk with God will have a refuge for release. The toys we have around us will quickly lose their meaning when our nice world falls apart and for necessities we are dreaming. Will we find extended hands as the conflict we do weather? 
or will we suffer in isolation, not having learned to pull together? Jesus beckons his yoke to take and come unto him and find rest. Many of us ignore his pleading, only responding when sore distressed. World conditions are fertile soil to claim mankind's attention. Many will rail that God is unfair, though the ills are our invention. When man's resources are exhausted and he's been brought to his knees, the Savior, his arms extended still, says, Those who will, come unto me. He is waiting to cleanse your sin, to quell the storm it causes. There is yet a little time while by his grace and love he pauses. Soon will come the trumpet sound and the shout from the eastern sky. Come to him without delay, for your redemption draweth nigh. He offers pardon for your sins, his life in exchange for yours. You lose your life to save it as grace and glory he ensures. I trust the case has been made that the sins of man and the ills of our nation are really one problem. Having strayed from walking in humility and dependence upon God, we have fallen prey to pride, living in our own strength and independence. Thus the very heart of the problem is rampant selfishness, whether in the individual, the family, the church, the nation, or the world. A materialistic society has resulted in many, if not most, families being forced to have two breadwinners not only to keep the wolf away from the door, but also to pay the tab for a whole society living contrary to God's plan and purpose, past and present. With our young people having been schooled in the tenets and rebellion of secular humanism, it falls to those of us who are in touch with our spiritual and national heritage to hold high the banner of the cross and the patriotism which has been the hallmark of our country until recent years. Since the preaching of the gospel has been diluted in this century, many sincere believers live most, if not all of their lives, in the defeat of the flesh, self-centeredness, with no one to point them to victory in Christ, their birthright. God raised up the Ministry of Grace Fellowship International, GFI, in 1969 to lead believers to know their identity in Christ and to equip them to minister to the body of Christ. You can become involved with this strategic ministry through prayer, personal ministry, and financial support. While it is infinitely better to have someone come alongside and minister to us from the Word, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are more than sufficient for the seeking believer to appropriate his inheritance in Christ. God has been pleased to bless the ministry of my books in clarifying from the scriptures how a person can lay hold of his resources in Christ for a life of victory, both here and hereafter. The books are designed for personal use and for understanding how to communicate this vital truth to others. The titles of the books and the address for purchasing them are provided in the tape packaging. Many believers have never heard that they can be freed from a lifetime of defeat and or emotional disturbances which may have wrecked relationships through a spirit-given understanding of their identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some have tried a variety of therapeutic modalities with little in the way of permanent change and frequently with great financial expenditure. It is my prayer that the message you have just heard will encourage you and spur you on to find victory in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you will, in turn, be a source of witness and encouragement to others. 
The body of Christ and our country are in desperate need of believers who will be the salt and light that God intended us to be, and that the Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted and glorified as we allow Him to live His life in and through us. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Acts 20, 32. I want to thank you for taking the time to consider the crucial situation in which we find ourselves and encourage you to band together with Christian friends to pray for revival as never before. As God leads you, I invite you to make yourself known to us that we might pool our resources to get out the message nationally and internationally. 